Epiphany um, also means another thing for us. It means uh, no more Christmas, like no more Christmas is Christmas is over. It's the end of the Christmas season, end of Advent. That also means no more Hallmark Christmas movies. I know how sad you are. Um, it's a sad day here in the Edgar house. They are a staple of our house around Advent and Christmas time. Now, if you've watched one Hallmark movie, then you've watched them all. They're pretty much the same theme or variation of the thing, right? They're this big city career oriented character will fall for some small town, community centered yet emotionally guarded character. They will find some missing fam family relic while baking cookies together, discussing a loved one gone too soon. Now we're not alone in Hallmark movie viewing at Christmas. Grace Lewenberger says, in December 2021, the Hallmark Channel had three movies amass over 3 million viewers during their live debuts. With their soothing and sentimental storylines featuring goofy yet good-hearted characters, plus nary a mention of COVID or anything like current, Hallmark has maybe cracked some entertainment code. The movies all end well with characters finding solutions to their problems, even getting kisses along the way. And while the plot points might be, you know, kind of easy to predict, and some scripts might be a little cringeworthy, it's not only true that I can't stop watching Hallmark movies, but I don't want to either, and especially uh, my wife does not. The reality is, is the sentimentality and lightheartedness of Hallmark Christmas mashes up with actual Christmas. We're being together with loved ones and others you're supposed to love at Christmas. Like the two worlds are colliding. Like I know for us, it's been um, a, a case study of family members leaving our home and then coming back during Christmas and then having to make adjustments to those family members. And it is always like grounded in reality, real relationships on top of real relationships and having to work the things out in those relationships um, that have been missing. Real Christmas doesn't look like the movies. Plot points aren't always easy to guess. Conflicts are re rarely solved completely. Businesses aren't always saved by the child who moves back home. Grief in these movements isn't, uh, in, in, in these movies is a distant memory reminisced over with maybe some hot cocoa. Loneliness isn't overcome by a, a rousing neighborhood snowball fight. Like, right, life is beautiful, but life is also hard. Kate Bowler, the writer, says it like this. Jesus's tender birth and violent death leave the problem of suffering unanswered until the end of days. We must learn to live and die, and hear this word, in the not-yetness of suffering, in the not-yetness of fear and uncertainty. But our questioning hearts in the face of evil is not an affront to faith. Jesus simply says, wait, all will be revealed. And this is where Roman 8, Romans 8 takes us on this Epiphany Sunday. How do we live and die in the not yetness of relationships that are sometimes in conflict, in the not yetness of suffering, in the not yetness of fear, in the not yetness of uncertainty? How do we live waiting for God to take the bad things 
and make them good? How do we live in this realm of the flesh while being in the spirit? How do we live with the, within broken relationships with the people that we love? How do we live with loss? How do we live with evil? Paul works his way through the end of Romans 8 by the way of the rhetorical question, right? You know, the question a preacher or teacher or speaker or parent maybe uses to make a point by asking a question that need not, should not be answered. Have you ever read the room and not read the room and blurted out an answer to a rhetorical question? When that happens, it's awkward. Like you're sitting there and a question is asked and you're like, oh, easy peasy. And you shout the answer and the room stops and everyone bends their gaze to your reddening face, right? Rhetorical questions ask, but they don't want a vocalized answer. The question is meant to like shake something loose in us. And here in Paul's 11 sentences, he is meant, he asked um, five different rhetorical questions. And those questions are meant to shake us loose. Um, For even though we do not see it or feel it, Paul wants us to know, he wants to end this chapter, letting us know that God is for us. God is for you. And his faithful love will bring us through the not yet world of the bad and sometimes terrible things. So, if you're outlining this morning, we basically have five questions and four answers. Really, it's, it's five answers, but the four other answers are the answer to the overarching first question. So we start with that first question, right? What shall we say to all this? That's the first rhetorical question that Paul asks. From, he's asking maybe as far back as chapter five, but certainly to the beginning of chapter eight. After, what should we say to all this? What shall we say? Well, he wants us to say, God is for you. God is for us. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And that leads to this second question. Who can be against us? If God is for us, God works on behalf of you. This is, maybe we could phrase, omnipotent grace, right? All-powerful grace. This is benefactor kind of grace. Like, hello, think of the richest, most powerful, most connected person in the world. And think of, in addition to those qualities, also the most deferential, the most giving, and the most loving person in the world. Those things don't usually go together. But this is what Paul's saying. This is God, and this God is for you. God is the richest, most powerful, most connected being in the universe, and he is the most deferential, most giving, and most loving. And he's for you. And if God is for you, then how can you think anything other than these things? These things right now happening to me in this world, the real ones with all the teeth and carnage, that those things will not somehow be for my good. That the story will not somehow bend towards me sharing in the glory that God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit share. That grace is all powerful and displays that God is for us. So who can be against us? If he, the most powerful and 
benefiting one is on our side, then why does it matter if anyone else is not on our side? That is omnipotent grace. God is for us. And this means, this leads to the next question that Paul asks. If God is for us, then who can bring a charge against God's elect, against his very own children? For it is God who justifies. This is vindicating grace. You have omnipotent grace. God is all-powerful, working for our benefit. He's for us. And then you have vindicating grace. God is a justifier. It is, if the Almighty God has declared them righteous, you righteous, who can reopen a case against you? I think about that for a moment. If the ruler of the universe has said to you this morning, that you are justified, that you are righteous because of the work of Jesus the Christ, then who can bring an accusation? Now, Satan does excuse, accuse us. You can picture that in the story of Job, where Satan goes before God and accuses Job of various things. But here Paul wants us to know that Satan is no match for Jesus Christ. If Christ died for our sins, for us sinners... And Christ, if Christ is sinless, then who will be found to condemn us? The only one who has chops to condemn us is God in Christ. But God has pledged at the cost of his son to deliver and not destroy us. This is vindicating grace. It is God who justifies. So no one can bring a charge against you, church. Friends, you might sit here this morning and feel under accusation, either your own or someone else's. And the temptation in these moments is to wrestle with that accusation and do something. And here this morning, God declares richly to you, it is God who justifies. So who can bring a charge? And also, the next question, who can condemn Christ Jesus died and was raised and is at the right hand of God the Father and is interceding for us. This is overcoming grace. Verse 34 hammers this home. One commentator says um, it's hammered on the anvil of eternal providence. The one who died redeemed us from judgment and sin. And the one who was raised guarantees victory over death and assurance of eternal life. And the one at the right hand of God attests that Jesus is in the enthroned Lord, reigning in power and glory, and he is interceding for us. He is executing his power on our behalf. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the Bible that this Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Again, picture the scene. Personal benevolence from on high. If the president was always at work for your good, interjecting a good word for your name at every moment, what would that mean for you in the doors and realms of this world? Right? Satan brings accusation, and Jesus is saying, no. And then says your name different from how Satan says your name. Like there's no accusation when Jesus says your name. He just says your name 
with love. Like, like how do you say your name? Like, like what accusations do you bring against yourself? What do you think about when you think about your own name? What about your neighbor, your adversary, your enemy? When your name is mentioned, is, is your picture a deep eye roll? It's not so with Jesus. The accusation comes to your name and there is someone stepping in with your de defense. There is one who is offering continual intercession on your behalf before God the Father, even as the accusations rang down. She is mine. She belongs to me. You can't talk about her in that way. Like some of you may have been just waiting for someone to pronounce those kind of words over you. Like in your family system, no one stepped to your defense. No one said those kind of things about you. And you feel every accusation particularly sharply. Well, Jesus steps in. She's mine. She belongs to me. You can't talk about her in that way. She is my chosen one. She has been called from before the foundation of the earth according to my purpose. What you say, that isn't true. This is overcoming grace. So the last question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? For we are more than conquerors in Christ. This is victorious grace. Who can separate, separate us? Can tribulation, are you right now experiencing some sort of tribulation? That tribulation cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Can distress, are you in distress? That those distresses cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Can persecution, are you experiencing persecution? Many in our world know the overcoming nature of persecution. Persecution cannot separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Famine, loss, hunger, hungering for something different in your life. That can't separate you from the love of Christ. Danger, nakedness. Being exposed, being ashamed, being in a vulnerable position or place. That can't separate you from the love of Christ. What about violence or the threat of death? We live always under a certain threat of death. And yet, you know, this season has left us more maybe acutely aware of that. But even that threat, even as different things come about different things to threaten us with the potential of death, that can't separate us, Paul says, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. How can we be saved if this is our story? If suffering is our story, how can we be saved? Here, Paul quotes 44, 22, citing loss that comes because of faith. For God's sake, we face death, the psalmist says, all the day long, our daily dying, if for God's sake, which means such, such suffering is not a sign of failure, but God's will. 
And then Paul drives home the reality of victorious grace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our tribulations and our sufferings can only serve God's purposes for our good. And so we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We aren't just conquerors once, by the way, but Paul's use of this Greek term here is always. The victory doesn't come just once, it comes always. And it doesn't just come by escaping suffering this once, but in the midst of suffering, there is an escape always. And so Paul finishes by taking the very real physical threats and then transports them to more metaphysical threats. So he moves from things like violence and danger and famine and persecution, distress and tribulation and moves to things like death and life, angels, demons, present, future, depth, height, powers, all creation. You see, Paul believed there were both malevolent and benevolent powers at work in the universe. He begins with death, perhaps, because he ended with the sword in verse 35. He says, even the power of death can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nor can the seductive impulses of life. They can't inhibit God's love for you. Angels and demons. Like, I remember, like, one of the things as a young person that when I was about Judson's age, one of the things I was most fearful of was the supernatural, the realm out there, and the thought that would enter my mind at such a story that I could be separated from the love of Christ Jesus from something supernatural. And here Paul articulates, that can't separate you. The present, the future, height or depth, like height and depth are astrological terms denoting a star's closest or farthest point from its zenith and hence personified in sidereal powers. Here Paul is saying that there is no superhuman extraterrestrial being that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we can say with one um, commentator, neither death shall hurt us for Christ died nor life because Christ was raised to life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, because Christ is at the right hand of God, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, because Christ is interceding for us. But as the dangers heighten, so does the apostles' confidence in God's love. And it, it, the confidence transports Paul into this like ecstatic, doxology, this moment of praise. I am convinced. He uses the perfect passive indicative in Greek. It means he is utterly and unshakable, unshakably convinced based on past experience that nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How can he be so convinced? Well, it comes from this text. Because he, God the Father, did not spare his own son. You see, the, the non-sparing of God's own son is the past experience that Paul is recollecting here. That is helping him to remain utterly and unshakably convinced. 
that these powers can't overwhelm him because of God's great love shown and displayed in God giving up his most precious one, his son. And so as we move here to really just one point of of application, what I want you to consider based on all of this is the ideas of glory and cross. Because the reality is, like right now in this world, are people against us? Yeah, sometimes. Do people bring charges and accusations? Yes. Are you condemned? Do you feel ashamed? Do you condemn yourself and condemn others? Yes, I do. Do you feel separate? Like, do you feel at times separated from God's love? Like, when do you feel that? When do you most acutely feel like God is separated? You are separated from him. When you sin, when you don't do the good that you should do, when you do the bad that you should not do, when you are in the middle of existential crisis and doubt, when you don't know your meaning or your purpose, yes. So the reality is, is we feel those things very acutely in the reality of our life. In this life, we will have people against us and there will be accusations and you will condemn yourself and be condemned by others. You will feel alone. You will feel separated like a woman on an island, like you're the only one who feels these things, experience these things, like God's love is not something that can come to you. You will feel like Romans 1, an object of wrath. And I think when we feel all these things, we are often tempted to somehow not feel. Like when people are against us, we want to find ways to win, to self-righteously display how we are better because we don't do that. Like we, we don't make people feel badly, even though they make us feel badly. We don't do that. So we somehow like lift our status above them. When people bring charges, we, we get defensive and then we bring charges of our own. When, when we're condemned, we numb that condemnation away by either agreeing with it, bringing it all in and kind of getting stuck in a shame loop, or we just try to positively think our way out of it. When separated, we bring God to our level and like project us onto God. And this is where verse 32 provides the ballast to those feelings, those um, things that we feel tempted to do or to be. He who did not spare his own son. You see, woven into all the amazing promises of this passage, all the glory that is to be revealed is a father who does not spare his own son. There's, this, this, in other words, is no vague benevolence. This is not a letter like from your congressman being for you as his constituents, typed out on some official letterhead, stamped with, his, with a copy of his signature. No, this is actual skin in the game type of stuff, personal type of stuff. God goes to this length to demonstrate these truths to us. And so here, Paul, reflecting, I think, back on chapter one, where he says, we humans pursued sin with abandon, and God gave us over to it. So in verse one, chapter one, verse 24, he says, God gave them over to their sinful desires. In verse 126, he says, he gave them over to their shame-filled lust. In verse 28, he says he gave them over to a depraved mind. And then here in 832, he uses the exact same word for the sacrifice of Jesus. 
God did not spare his own son, but gave, that word there, handed him over for us all. You see, Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus is the personal letter delivered to all of us in his own blood, the signet ring of signet rings. God gave him up for us all. And so the the question that is naturally like comes out of that. So if God did that, how can his favor ever be doubted? God handing his son over to the death for us is the assurance of assurances that even in a world of deep loss, even of a, a world that does not end like right now in this moment in a Hallmark movie, that God is for us in all things for our salvation, both now and in the world to come. And here's how this, that should act for us. If he did not spare his own son for us, how will he not freely give us all things? There's so many times like when my children will doubt um, my benevolence, my desire to be for them, like, even though there's this a life of examples of the ways that, like, I've come through for them or helped them, not perfectly, fail lots in that. Even though there's tons of examples of that, they're still in that moment where at crux where they can doubt it. And Paul is trying to say that, like, you know, just like Jesus said, if, if we give good gifts who are wicked, how can God, who is pure and holy in his love, not give good gifts? Like God the Father gave what is most precious. If he did not spare his own son, and so if he gave us what was most precious, his son for you, how will that not ensure all of this in Romans chapter 8? That even if people are against us, he is for us. How will he not ensure that how will this, the fact that he gave his own son for you, not ensure that no charge can be levied against you, that any accusations that come your way will just drop by the wayside, that they will not stand, that they will not stand up, that they will not have weight, that they will just drop here and forever, that he will not, how will he not ensure that you aren't condemned, that you aren't banished? that you aren't voted off the island, even when your earthly friends and family do? How will he not ensure, because he's given us his son, that you will conquer through him who loves us, even over death, even over life, even over things present, even over things to come, even over angels and rulers and powers and demons, even over height and depth and any other thing in all creation, if he did not spare his own son for you, how can you not know that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Hear that, friends. God the Father, the Creator, it is His love that sends His only Son to die the death that you should have died. And since He did this, you can know that He is for you, that He justifies you, that you can't be condemned, that you are more than conquerors. Grace is not 
an escape from this world and its dangers. Rather, grace stands before the yawning abyss in stark terror and confesses that they are no match for the invincible love of God. God's love cannot be defeated and it will not let us go. You can also be sure that a threat to you resting in these glorious realities is to have them now, to realize them now, to take hold of them now, instead of seeing the pattern for the realization of these promises is a father who does not spare his own son. That is the ballast. How do you live now in a world of people against you, in a world of accusations and condemnation, in a world of feelings of alienation and separation? How do you live now? You embrace a son who went to a cross, and in that you find the pattern for living in this world. You too follow Jesus to a cross, and you believe that this is the way, that the cross is the path to glory, that there's no glory without a cross. And so Romans 8 is a testament of what is to come and a testament of what is now. And it's also a pattern for us of how we live. He who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not freely give you all things? Even as you pick up your cross and carry it and suffer in carrying it, how will he not also freely give you all things? This last week, um, I had the privilege of getting to kind of do my uh, senior trip with my daughter, Jaden, with her senior, her senior trip with my daughter, Jaden. And she wanted to go to the Passion Conference. And so um, it's a big conference that's been held for, you know, the last 25 years or so. And I went um, as a young, uh, young adult, just graduated from college. I took college students there um, as a college student leader, as a college pastor. And it was surreal to go back 15 years later with my daughter and experience in a lot of ways, some of the same messaging that I experienced as a young adult. And it, Jay and I talked on the way home, like, like standing in the middle of 60,000 people. And what a, what a beautiful gift it was to like experience that, like the glory and the transcendence of such a moment of people singing praise to God, of hearing the scriptures preached amongst a group of people. That experience was, was, was incredible. And it, and it felt it, you know, exhilarating. And yet, it's not the normative Christian experience. Like the glory of that is not our normative, our daily experience in Christ, in a church. In our church, at City Press, where we gather a hundred of us with less uh, glory, way, be- way less good preaching, and you know, not to offend Whippa, way less worship leading. Like, like in those moments of the ordinary, how do we live? It's not all victory and ascent and glory. Like in these ordinary moments, it is much more earthly. And yet we can be assured that in these ordinary things that God is for us right now in all the broken parts of our life, God is for us. Friends, you can be sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate you 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to learn to live and die in the not yetness of our existence. In the hard wrought hope of a Christ that reminds us our life will not be one of permanent loss and pain. That in the end, God is a God who will make everything sad come untrue. And it will be everlasting. That you're for us. And so I pray that we would both internalize that, believe it, walk out in that this morning. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.